we have to give kids the agency to be able to ask because we want them to have that later on in life. That's how we prevent bullying. But we have to actually go in and teach kids how to do it. Welcome to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist, former parent of a child in Project's Demonstration Preschool, and current Project Enlightenment Foundation board member. The goal of this podcast is to expand services to the young children of Wake County through parent education. So today we are going to be talking about understanding toddler behavior, and I'm so excited to have another board member on, um, Lynn Young, who is joining us. How you doing, Lynn? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for being here. So Lynn has spent over three decades as a teacher, trainer, and coach. For 20 years, she taught in an inclusive preschool classroom that she designed for children with hearing loss to learn and play alongside their peers with normal hearing. Home visiting and parent education were an integral part of this program. During her time in the classroom, Lynn was a demonstration teacher for the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. She's also served as a cooperating teacher for countless student interns from Meredith College and was a mentor for beginning teachers in the Wake County Public School System in Raleigh. Prior to her work in the preschool setting, she worked as a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing at the upper elementary and high school levels. She retired from Wake County Public Schools in 2018. During the final five years, she worked as a preschool coordinating teacher supporting preschool special education and Title I teachers. Currently, she works as a conscious discipline certified instructor working with parents and teachers all over the country and as a life coach for parents and teachers. So Lynn is very qualified to join me in this conversation to talk about toddler behavior. Woo, that was a lot. Such an awesome career. Okay, so Lynn, let's just dive right in. So one of the most common concerns that parents have for young children is about behavior. It's about the big emotions, the explosive moments, and kind of feeling helpless and not knowing what to do. So I'd like to just start with a framework of what is developmentally appropriate, what's expected out of our, you know, two, three, and four-year-olds. Let's kind of go by the years. You know, I think everyone under two kind of expects fussiness and expects you know, babies and infants to cry and need things. But for some reason, once we get to two, (laughs) we start having expectations. So I'd love to just start with what can we expect from two-year-olds about how they show their emotions? Well, yes, this is so true. Like when they're infants, we're all like, oh, look, let's pick them up. Let's take care of them. Let's do all of those things. And then suddenly they get to two and they move and they are doing all kinds of things and they're exploring. And that's the thing about two-year-olds is they don't have very many words yet. Some of them don't have any words. And so they're out there trying to explore the world and figure it out. And as adults, we're like, what are you doing? Stop. No. And that's kind of where we start to get a little panicked because we're like, oh, wait, I knew exactly what to do when they were little. You go, you pick them up, and they're in a in a contained place. And so suddenly, for two-year-olds, it's all about that exploration. Let me see what this world's all about. Let me see where it is. But the big thing about two-year-olds is they want their people. 
And so they always come back like they they we call them toddlers. And I think it's such a perfect phrase because they kind of toddle away and check out the world. And then they come back and they touch base with us as adults because I need my person. I want to feel safe again. And so I think that's what we see a lot of with two year olds. And as adults, we're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I deal with letting them have that little bit of freedom that they really want and at the same time keep them safe? And so that's kind of what I think are where the behavior starts to come in with our two-year-olds. Right. And then as they get closer to three, they're, you know, stringing sentences together and they have opinions. Yes. And so what should we expect at three? Yeah. Well, and I think the thing, the big thing about two is two, they also learn no and them saying no. No, I don't want that. And and we're all like, wait, what do you really want? And then all of a sudden, these three-year-olds, you're right, they start having a lot of opinions about things. And that's when you start hearing a lot of times three-year-olds will be, I can do it. I can do it. And they are trying to do things that are really very hard for them. They get very frustrated because they still don't have enough language to really let us know what's going on completely. And then when we don't get it, like when as adults, we don't get it, then they get really frustrated. And then you start to see temper tantrums. And those come in place, you know, the end of the twos and the beginning of the threes, we start to really see those big temper tantrums. And it's not because they're trying to make our life miserable. It's more about they're just trying to help us understand and they're trying to figure it out too. And then suddenly we hit those four-year-olds and those four-year-olds, it's sort of like a little bit of magic because they really have opinions. They start figuring out how they can negotiate things um, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so they'll challenge us more as adults. They'll bring things to the table. They ask so many questions because they are starting to understand more and more, but then they're like, okay, I understand this and I understand this, but I don't know how to put those two pieces together. So they begin to ask us a lot more questions and sometimes become really frustrated when what they have, their view of the world doesn't match what everybody else is trying to tell them to do at that point in time. And so two, three and four year olds, they're just so much fun. But at the same time, they're just trying to learn things. And the one thing that I always tell parents and teachers is Like, if you think about it, a two-year-old has been in this world 24 months. And think about yourself, if you had a brand new job and it was 24 months and you're still trying to learn all those things and you didn't have to learn how to go to the bathroom and talk and (laughs) eat and do all of the things that we have to do, that our little ones have to do. And so when we start thinking about that two-year-olds have been with us 24 months and three-year-olds 36 And four-year-olds, 48 months, that's not really very much time to master all of the things that they have. And sometimes we forget that behavior and social-emotional learning has to be taught. They don't just magically come out knowing how to do those things. Right. And will you say a little bit more about how that teaching kind of comes about? You know, we, of course, I think traditionally think you know, teaching these skills happens in a telling kids what to do, but that's not really what you're talking about here. It's in mm-hmm. observations and communication and connection. So can you elaborate on what that teaching really looks like at these preschool ages with emotions? 
So when we're talking about brain development for kids, that emotional, what I call emotional state through conscious discipline, we talk about the emotional state. And when that's coming online, like I said, it comes on with no. But as adults, we have executive skills. We have a prefrontal lobe that tells us what to do. It also, we also have an internal voice that says, no, it's not appropriate to run through the store right now because that's a place that you're supposed to walk. And and little kids, they don't have any of that internal voice that says, don't do that. And so for us, that means we have to stop and look at them and say, oh, you just didn't know how to do this. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt. You didn't know that this wasn't a safe place to to run. So let me show you. And then we grab their little hands and we say, look, we're going to walk through here. Or you didn't know how to get something. Like you didn't know how to ask me that you wanted milk instead of juice. So you, you threw your milk cup off of your tray. You just threw it on the floor. And this is the way you ask for it. You say juice. And we actually teach them what we want them to do. And that's the piece where adults have to remember that we have to know what we want kids to do. I call that loaning them our prefrontal lobe. So we basically co-regulate kids. If we get upset, then kids get upset. They're masters at reading a room. They can tell if the parents are really upset or the parents are having an argument, then they're going to read that room and they're going to be upset too. A lot of times you'll see kids that'll start throwing a temper tantrum or screaming because the adults in the room are upset. And so we have to co-regulate with them. So first we have to be calm and composed, and then we can expect that of kids because they pick up on what we do. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit more about co-regulation. You know, when I explain this to parents, I will often say we're the most familiar with co-regulation when we're holding a baby. We're all Mm -hmm. wired to just adjust. Like we've never, you know, picked up a baby without adjusting something like our body softens, our voice changes. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. I, I will never forget my like 25-year-old cousin holding my boys for the first time. And he had never held a baby because he was an only child. <laughs> and even he was like, oh, like he he felt awkward, but like his body changed. And like mm-hmm. we're wired to soften and to soothe. And we make noises and mirror facial expressions. And we just naturally do it. And co-regulation comes so naturally with an infant just like acceptance of emotions and and altering how we respond to emotions can come so naturally. But what does co-regulation look like with what I say is big kids? So that two to four range, and I know conscious discipline has a lot of awesome strategies related to this, but give us some examples of of what um, I call it kind of quote unquote rocking the baby, but it could look very different with a a two-year-old, a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Right. I think one of the things Conscious Discipline does beautifully with this is Dr. Bailey talks to us about what are called I love you rituals. And they are the way that allows us to connect and begin to build that emotional safety that kids need and connection with kids. And then we begin to co-regulate. And when we think about that, we're talking about eye contact, touch, playfulness, and 
and our presence. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that starts to happen. We get lots of things going on in our lives and we are not present with children. So we have to actually be present with a child. And I always know that I'm present when I start to play with a child and I hear giggles. Those giggles tell me that I have all of a sudden co-regulated because you're right. Two-year-olds, sometimes they don't want to be picked up. Um, they don't want to be held, which we immediately go, oh, our body's going to soften and our face softens. What they really are looking for is they want to play. That, that's when they want to play peekaboo. That's when they want to see if you're going to play a little game of chase with them. And those are great ways that we co-regulate with, with our little ones. And then sometimes they come and they always come back to us and look at us for their touchstone. And that's when all of a sudden then they crawl up in your lap and they cuddle up and we all go, oh yeah, I remember this. This is what it felt like for a baby. And we want, mm -hmm. we want that. And we all, I think as adults innately, we enjoy that piece. But mm -hmm. for them, that we also have to remember that we have to take them where they are. And so sometimes that's a game of peekaboo. Sometimes that's playing a game of chase. Sometimes that's helping them find something that's really unique when they're on a walk outside. To go for a walk with a three-year-old means enjoying what is around you. And so if you can take that moment and mindfully walk with them, they notice all the things. They'll notice the bugs on the ground. They notice the tiniest flower in the grass. And that's where you suddenly are able to be with them and co-regulate. And they're like, oh, my person's here. And you can just see kids. They are like, all right, I'm with you. So why is that connection so important to emotional regulation and behavior? So I'm sure some people are listening and thinking, but I just need my child to stop throwing a tantrum. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this is mm -hmm. all the work that is the foundation that comes before. That's exactly so right. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So when we talk about it and, and conscious discipline, I will say when we talk about it, we talk about kids have to have a felt sense of safety so that they know they've got their person. They feel safe in that environment and it is their perception. But then connection comes in place. And when you have connection and safety in place, then you can really begin to use to co-regulate because kids are ready to learn they're ready to be with you. And so when we're talking about little kids, a lot of times that's when I start to use things because I've got a relationship with them. So when I'm looking at a child and let's take the, the toddler that throws their glass of milk because that's not what they wanted at that moment in time. I can look at that child and if I'm not connected with them and they don't feel safe, then whatever I say, they're going to just continue to throw a temper tantrum. They're going to be upset about that. But right. if I'm connected with them and they feel safe with me, that I'm not going to be angry at them, that I'm not going to do anything that might hurt them, I can look at them and say, oh, you really wanted something different and you didn't know how to ask me for that. This and then I and then sometimes it's still a guessing game, especially when that language isn't online. I can go, did you want juice instead? And if they you, you kind of get an acknowledgement of that, then you can say, 
oh, tell me, juice or juice, please, whatever words they happen to have at that point in time. But if Mm -hmm. you don't have the safety and the connection with kids, they aren't going to be willing to do that for you. And that's what we, when we just beginning skills of the executive state where kids are able to problem solve and begin to figure things out. And, you know, it takes until age 24 for that to completely come online, but they're starting to figure things out. And that's using some of that executive state, but we had to go back and we had to teach them. If there's no connection with a child, they're not willing to learn from you. And I often will say to parents this, you know, the analogy you were saying earlier of you started a new job and you've been in it just for, you know, a short amount of time. Think about not having a relationship with your coworkers or your boss and your boss is asking you to do something that you don't have all the skills for and you may not trust them yet or they're really inconsistent Mm -hmm. or you don't know what's going to happen next, that's going to raise anxiety and that's going to impair your ability to to do what you need to do and to pay attention and all the things. And we're adults with fully developed brains. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I assume it's similar in this type of situation. It, It would be very similar when you think about that's a really good analogy with adults that if that happened, we might go home and complain to a spouse or someone at home about you. I can't believe this boss asked me to do this. They've never shown me how to do all of the the things that the skills that they're asking them to do. When we think about that from two-year-olds and we look at those little guys, they're like, they don't have any idea because nobody's ever taught them. So when we think about We would teach a child how to walk. We will work really hard to teach a child how to use the potty, how to feed themselves. All of those behavior things are no different. Telling a child how to ask for something, helping a child to know how to read social cues, to be able to share a toy. Like a lot of parents have a hard time with that piece. And that's because Mm -hmm. we actually have to teach that skill. We have to give them all the pieces because if you think about it, it's a big deal. You have to read somebody's facial cues. You have to kind of figure out what they're telling you from all of those facial cues. And you have to know the appropriate way to ask for what you want. That's a lot of stuff for a two-year-old that's been around for 24 months or even a three or four-year-old that's been around 36 or 48 months to know all at one time. Right. And so all of this teaching has to take into account children's skills. And um, one thing I always, you know, make sure families know and and teachers know this if they're preschool teachers, but all of these skills are developing at different rates. They're developing in different kids in different ways. If your child is developing and might have an attention difference or a learning difference, or you think they might be on the autism spectrum, it could be really unpredictable what order Mm -hmm. these skills develop in. So let's talk for a minute about the skills that are needed in terms of speech and language and motor skills to do these, you know, these social jobs, really, of being in the community, of asking for juice instead of milk. Because when we don't have the skills, when a child doesn't have the skills 
They're going to use what they have, which is their body and their voice and their emotions to get mm-hmm. our attention, to gain access to the thing. I know in, in your work, especially with communication and language development, let's talk, let's start there of what have you noticed that, you know, kids might not have or that hasn't developed yet that's leading to some behavior? Well, I think a lot of times we we forget that kids actually need to be able to see the object. So when I deal with kids that have a lot of language delays, I actually pull out the object. So if it was the milk and juice example, and even in my classroom, I would use, do you want milk? And I'd hold up the milk jug, or do you want juice? And I'd hold up the juice jug so that then they had a visual to go along with that. What we know about children up until about the age of eight is they process information through pictures or through the actual mm-hmm. visual object. And a even lot of Even when times, they're verbal. <laughs> even when they're verbal. And so if you have a nonverbal kid, you really need that. And what I always talk to parents about is the order in which kids use those things. So we use objects first. And then you can go to photographs that that look like real things before you go to illustrations. So a lot of times if you go out online, you'll see pictures, but they're illustrations. Well, if you can actually take a picture with your phone and print that out of of your child or of the actual object, that's going to be the next thing. But go to those objects first, take them there. And that for language development And I think helping them learn how to make a choice whenever we have things like we just think that I can look at a child and say, do you want orange juice or do you want milk? And they're going to be able to answer that question because we think they know it. And if a kid is has some some learning differences and they're trying to figure that all out, we really need to give them that object so that they know what it is. They can feel it. They know how to interact with it able to make those choices. And I think that's one of the first things parents can do. Children who are on the autism spectrum really thrive with that. They need to have those things there. A lot of times teachers will actually use objects and give those to kids so that they can make those choices and to help them know what to do next. Right. I love that example because when I work with kids who have you know, processing weaknesses or who have weaknesses and coming up with their own ideas or, or comprehension weaknesses, what this really is, is a weakness in ideas and visualization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what happens in our brains? I mean, think about it as a fully developed adult with a fully developed brain. What happens when someone says, do you want tea or Coke? You have a visual in your head Sometimes it might be a, a taste memory or it, but it might also be a visual of a, you know, a tall glass iced tea with a lemon yeah. on it or, a, you know, a Coke with a straw that's like so good from your favorite place. Like you visualize that and you have a memory connected to it all because of your life experience. So young children do not have a large repertoire of life experience of these visuals. So when we're using objects A lot of people will think, oh, well, I don't need to do that because my child doesn't have special needs or they don't have a weakness in, you know, in speaking or whatever the thing is. But 
like you said, visuals are there to expose our children to all these things they're learning around them. And if your child has any attentional weaknesses, they may be able to notice that thing if they're paying attention, but they might be missing some cues. They might be missing what that thing looked like. So all of these visuals and strategies can kind of slow kids down and teach to what we're expecting them to do so that as they grow up, then they internalize what these things look like, which helps them in their communication and helps in when they can communicate and that comes more fluidly. The emotions stay more regulated, the behaviors reduce, and all of that mm-hmm. gets better, right? Exactly. And I think the other thing that using the objects or the pictures do for the adult in the situation, it slows us down. Because if you have mm-hmm. two objects and you're waiting for a child to choose, you're more likely to wait and let because you know they're looking at it and you kind of can see that. But whenever we just use oral language to present them with a choice, do you want milk or do you want juice? What we tend to do is we don't wait long enough and then we say it again, which means they have to start all of that auditory processing all over again. And so then they're back to going, okay, they want me to pick between two things. And it's it's like their, their brain is suddenly going, I, I forgot what was said. And now I have to process it all again, because most of the time as adults, we don't wait long enough. And so even if you have a child with no disabilities, nothing, no learning differences going on, make sure that you're putting in that wait time for them, you know, and and it can be a toy. It can be anything. Do you want to play with the fire truck or do you want to play with the cars and then give them a minute to figure it out. And what I always say to parents is wait until you feel a little bit uncomfortable and then count to five, you know, <laughs> at least because all of a sudden you're going to find yourself being able to slow down. And, yeah. and we live in a really fast paced world as adults, but kids don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that's one of the right. things I've learned over all these years of working with little kids is that I had to slow myself down and really be present with them because they don't function at that high speed that we sometimes function at as adults. Right. And the example that I can share, and I share this with all the families I work with, is that when I was trained in DIR floor time, working with young children on the autism spectrum, it is part of the therapy to not help them. Let's say a toy is broken and they cannot figure it out, or they're trying to jam a car into something that you know is not going to fit, you know, our instinct is to jump right in and help them, right? And this happens Mm -hmm. all day long, every day in classrooms and homes across the world with parents being like, come on, we got to go just put on your jacket, right? I had to literally sit on my hands when I was getting trained as a play therapist, because our instinct is to reach out and help them. But there is so much information and how they problem solve that thing that's happening in front of them. Yes, you might get behavior. Yes, you're going to get frustration. But can they tolerate the emotion and still figure out how to turn the car and fit it on the ramp? That moment is so powerful for their confidence. You don't want to miss it. If there is a meltdown and you get a lot of behavior, they're not 
able yet developmentally to do that, to feel all the emotion and problem solve. But you want to wait. I love that. You just wait until you're uncomfortable because have your, I got to sit on my hands moment and then Mm -hmm. wait a little bit longer and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. I wanted to switch back to something you said earlier about kids getting along and needing to share. And that the, this goes along with us wanting to jump in too, as parents, the most frequent place I see this is like at the park or on the playground where parents are milling about and you're trying to let your kids play, but it's really hard not to get involved because two, three, and four-year-olds are going to grab toys from each other. They're mm-hmm. going to jump in front of somebody on the slide. They're going to go up the slide instead of down the slide. So let's talk a little bit about toddlers playing together, what behaviors might come up, and how parents should respond or not respond mm-hmm. if a child um, is having, you know, big explosive behavior or getting frustrated and, and a parent knows it's going to about to turn into a tantrum at a park or, you know, at, at a public mm-hmm. play place. Right. And we want to keep our kids safe. And so we go in there and a lot of times as adults, we want to fix it for them because sometimes, like you said, you want to sit on your hands because it's uncomfortable to watch kids learn how to ask for a turn and do those things with with each other. And so that has been one of the things that I teach teachers about all the time is how do we not go and look at two kids that are fighting over a toy and take the toy and say, no, this toy belongs to her and stop that. You're not being nice, which is a lot Mm -hmm. of times we just want to stop it. And so the thing that I always teach teachers to do is it's a little different because it changes as kids' language grows. Um, But with two toddlers, so say you have two two two-year-olds and you have this one two-year-old and they are holding on to the ball with all it's worth. And all (laughs) of a sudden, another two-year-old's coming over and this two-year-old is getting ready to grab that ball. So, you know, our instinct as adults is to go in and say, no, that's not your ball. That's her ball. And, you know, try and distract them. One of the things that we can do to help kids begin to learn to read um, facial cues and have better understanding of what's happening socially is to look at the child that's trying to take the ball and then you go in and you become the voice for the child who has the ball. And you say, look at her face. Her face is telling you she wants the ball. You can't have it right now. And then you can say, if you want the ball, say, turn, please. And we actually, at that point, we're giving kids the opportunity to to learn how to ask rather than to just go in and say, no, you can't do this. You can't take the ball. The other thing that's always interesting is whenever the kid says, turn, please, my experience with that, nine times out of 10, the kid will turn and they'll hand them the ball. They just Mm -hmm. give it to them. But it is a matter of actually providing voice for the child who maybe doesn't have the voice to say, no, I want to play with it. It's my ball right now. Um, Two-year-olds, a lot of times what they'll scream is mine, and that, but they don't know how to go any further than that. Now, when right. you start getting to three-year-olds, you can begin to ask a three-year-old if they like it. You know, somebody's trying to take a toy and you say, do you like that? And they usually will just shake their heads, no. And then we can we can teach them to say, stop, my toy. And 
And then we can teach the other child to say, can I have a turn? And then that's how we begin to ask that. Once they get to four, we were, they have a lot more language. And so we are asking kids, do you like it? Do you like it when someone's trying to take the ball from you? And they say, no. Sometimes what I find, even four-year-olds, though, will go, yes. And then you're like, so you want them to take your ball? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want them to take my ball. And so then we teach them to tell them, I don't want to share my ball right now. Because that's an okay Mm -hmm. thing to have happen. But we have to give kids the agency to be able to ask because we want them to have that later on in life. That's how we prevent bullying. But we have to actually go in and teach kids how to do it. And so when we ask the question, when someone's trying to take something from someone or a kid hits someone, did you like that? And they say, no. Then we begin to give them a voice to say, I don't like it when you hit me. Mm-hmm. If you want me to move, say move, please. And that's where we start, you know, our fours and fives are really able to handle that and begin to do that. And so I think that's one of the most important things that we have to do as parents and teachers is to give kids agency to be able to begin to solve those social problems that come up for them. Um, because if we always step in and solve it, and sometimes we even step in earlier than we need to. Sometimes if we Mm -hmm. just give it a minute, the kids will figure it out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't even solve it. We just stop the situation because we're uncomfortable. So it goes back to helping all the adults that are listening question. If you're uncomfortable, but everyone is safe, they're figuring it out, you know, just Mm -hmm. slow down and watch what transpires. And if you need to go up and coach what's happening as long as no one's being aggressive, you can coach that and, and see how it pans out. And, and again, the, the power, the agency they're going to feel for solving that problem is just huge and for their development. Yeah. And I, I really do believe kids are a lot more likely to share a toy, to change behavior when they're asked by a peer than when they're asked by an adult coming in, because they mm-hmm. do feel like they have agency in the situation. And that's what's always amazing to me. I sit back and I, I've coached that so many times and watch it. And then kids go, okay, I'm like, yes, but right. it still surprises me when it happens. Mm-hmm. So for our last question, I wanted to talk a little bit about anxiety because anxiety is something that comes out as behavior mm-hmm. at these ages, at really older ages as well, but we'll specifically talk about these. And this time of year, some are experiencing separation anxiety. Um, maybe they're having their first pre-K experience or they're they're going to, for the first time and spending some hours away from their home family with their new school family. So what is developmentally appropriate in terms of behavior when it comes to separation anxiety in this age range? And how long kind of should it go on before we're concerned about it? And then we can chat for a few minutes about strategies. You know, the younger the kids are, two-year-olds, that's not uncommon because you're suddenly having to build a relationship with a new person and they're looking for their person. They're, They're going, wait, mom's my person and I, I don't know this other person. So that's where we begin. You've got to build the relationship. And so as that relationship builds, 
And I think it varies on how quickly kids build relationships. Sometimes kids build those relationships really easily if they've had lots of opportunities to do that in the community, or they go and and stay with grandma and grandpa, or they are outside their home a little bit more. But some kids, they don't have very many of those opportunities. So it might take them a little bit of time to get accustomed to that. But I really think that separation anxiety, as long as we build the connection with whoever the caregiver is for them or the preschool Mm -hmm. teacher, you're going to see that that develop. And that's what I see. I would say that to be true for threes and four-year-olds too. Three and four-year-olds, because they have more life experience, that sounds sort of funny mm-hmm. when you're talking about three and four-year-olds, but three and four-year-olds have more life experience and they're like, oh, so there are other people who will take care of me and play with me and be connected with me So their anxiety isn't nearly as high about the separation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we also have to remember that whole idea of loaning your state kind of dictates a child's state. If you go in as a parent with a lot of anxiety about leaving your child, then your child's going to have a lot more separation anxiety as well. So You going in, you need to believe and have a lot of faith and trust in the adult that you are leaving your child with so that you can can give that same information to your child, that your child knows, okay, mom trusts this person or dad trusts this person. Mm -hmm. So this is an okay person. It'll go a lot better. And which is why, you know, so many of our preschool teachers will go and do home visits or they ask you to come in ahead of time. Those visits are so important. Whenever those opportunities come up, try and do whatever you can as a parent or a caregiver to be sure that you take advantage of those because that allows you to feel more comfortable, which in turn will allow your child to feel more comfortable and experience a lot less anxiety. Right. I love those strategies. So, you know, making sure that the child understands that their their trusted people in that, that circle is just expanding and mm-hmm. that, you know, three and four year olds have more experience because they know that mom and dad do come back and get them. <laughs> They've had more experience with that. So they trust the process. And then that home visit is is so important because it helps kids see the teacher come to the home and and then the parent goes to the classroom and that Yes, these are two different relationships, and but they can happen in these two different places mm-hmm. to expand the relationships in the community too. So yeah, that yeah. I completely agree. Those are all great ideas. And also, you know, if kids are having a really hard time with it, um, the little ones, a lot of times I would ask the parents to bring something like a t-shirt like that they maybe had worn to bed because that sense of smell is so right there. and kids, a lot of times they'll just hang on to it and kind of carry it with them. You know, there's lots of other strategies that you can build rituals around for kids. I have one teacher that she did kiss cups. And so in the morning, the parent would bring the child and they would do a kiss cup and mom would, you know, throw the kisses in the cup and they'd put the lid on it. And then the child could go over and get the cup. Um, also put in family pictures where you are Mm -hmm. so that children can go and get pictures of their family, you know, and include everybody in it, brothers and sisters and dogs and cats, all of those things, because those are also really wonderful ways to help kids deal with that anxiety of being 
away from the place that they feel the safest, um, away from their home family where they go, oh, okay, this is where people love me and care for me and, and do all of the things that I need. Exactly. So thank you, Lynn, so much for joining us today. This is, I know we've just scratched the surface on some of these ideas, but I hope it gives our listeners a little bit of a better understanding of where toddler behavior comes from um, and some strategies for supporting it. You can always reach out to Project Enlightenment for support and the parent um, counselors there. Another thing we mentioned earlier was creating visuals and routines. And there's a resource center at Project Enlightenment in downtown Raleigh where you can go and create these visuals and get help with printing pictures or figuring out how to um, implement those visuals into your home. We also will be doing a whole other episode on routines and visuals. So stay tuned for that later in the series. But I just want to thank Lynn for her time today and for joining us. And we will talk soon. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Raising Young Children in Wake County, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation, which you can find at projectenlightenmentfoundation.org. We would love for you to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and fellow parents. We're all in this together, and we hope we can make a difference in the lives of parents and children. Thank you to our sponsors, the Empire Gives Back Foundation and Empire Eats, which includes the downtown Raleigh restaurants, City, Gravy, Raleigh Times, Mecca, and the Pit Authentic Barbecue, bringing great food to the community as well as supporting local causes, especially those that touch the lives of children. Thanks to BHDP, an award-winning international architectural firm, which is recognized for intelligent, innovative, and inspiring design solutions in architecture, planning, and interior design. Thanks to K&L Gates, a global law firm with offices in Raleigh and RTP for their generous contribution to make this podcast happen. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we'll see you again soon on Raising Young Children in Wake County.